Our Holy Father, we thank you for the blessing of children. They are a gift from you. And what a responsibility and a privilege to be able to shape a young life and aim them towards eternity and not just to bring them into the kingdom, but to really help them to grow and mature. And so that's what we're learning from you, that we might pass these truths on to the next generation as we minister to our own children and grandchildren and even other people's children. Be with us tonight. May the Spirit of God meet us here. May what we say be incredibly helpful and edifying and life-changing. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you're joining us for the first time, this is Biblical Parenting 102. 101 is not a prerequisite, but if this is a subject you want to study, I would highly recommend it. There are nine sessions to that course, just five to this. Tonight, we are continuing with presenting the gospel to a child, handout number two there, as you can see. By way of introduction, and by the way, there are people taking this for the Institute, so there's a few blanks to fill in every week, but they're not too difficult, and I try to make them real short, um, but for accreditation purposes and everything else, we have to do some of these things. All right, follow along. In our last session together, we discussed how embracing our responsibility to obey the great commission of Jesus includes leading our children or our grandchildren or someone else's children to faith in Christ. The Lord Jesus, in giving his commission, said to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The words every creature in Jesus' command includes children. Some parents, or just adults in general, when considering sharing the gospel with a child, can be both excited and cautious, fearing they might say something wrong. While we are not to be half sloppy in our handling of Scripture, God will use what we've learned and studied. Remember, it is our responsibility to go and share the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. It is God's responsibility to bring the child to himself through real faith in Jesus. And really, that could be said of any kind of witnessing that you are engaged in. Successful witnessing is when you take the initiative as a spirit-filled believer, not in your own power, but in the power of the Spirit, to share the plan of salvation, and you leave the results to God. It's not our responsibility to convert people. The part that we play in the power of the Holy Spirit is to share the gospel, whether it's an adult or a child. One indication that a believer is maturing in their Christian faith is that they have a growing concern for the spiritual care and nurture of children. And that care and concern will extend beyond our own children to other people's children too. With that said, it is difficult to win your own child to Christ, much less someone else's, if you are not a kind and loving person like Jesus. Parents in Jesus' day felt free to come to him with their children so that he might lay his hands on them and pray, Matthew 19, 13. They knew him to be the kind of person a child would like to be around. The Lord was not a standoffish and unapproachable kind of person. And if we are mean or impatient or bothered by children thinking they are not that important, then God will most likely never use us to introduce them to his son. So this is why Parenting 101 is so important, because as much as anything, our success 
in parenting our own children and also taking the command to preach the gospel to every creature, yea, even children, comes down to our character, what we are like. And if we're mean and unloving and unapproachable to children, God can't use us. And some just don't care. I mean, that's sad. Our church is profoundly different, and I am so grateful to see what God has done. But many people come here, and they just don't care about kids. They're new Christians, new to the faith. They they don't even talk to kids, don't even see the kids. They just see adults. But children are a vital part of God's kingdom. And as I told you last week, every church is one generation from extinction. Remember, in attempting to bring a child to faith, as parents, we must be sensitive to the attitude and level of spiritual awareness in each of our children. So they can be in different places, and we need to be sensitive to that and not compare one child to the next. We'll speak to that subject further when we speak about discipling our children. On the one hand, some children are completely unaware of biblical truth because the parents started late in the process. And so they are not yet ready to respond. Some parents, because of irresponsibility, kind of woke up sometimes to a crisis in their life, and they realized, man, what am I doing? My kids are growing up, and I'm not really even building into their lives. And then you have some who just come to faith late in life. And they come to faith, and they have a child 15 and 12 and 9, And their child doesn't know anything about the Bible, but that's okay. God meets us where we are at. So that's one category. On the other hand, other children have more knowledge of God and the Bible and the plan of salvation such that they are open and even ready to receive Christ. Still others will need your earnest prayer because while they may be knowledgeable, they are closed-minded due to the atmosphere in the home. This is important. I can't underscore this enough. If you have a husband and wife and they're just constantly at each other's throats, Christian people, and you're trying to introduce your children into the kingdom, you've created a big stumbling block and a big deficit. And they will begin to think, especially as they mature, why would I want what they have? As parents... We must recognize that our role is to learn to co-labor with God in order to influence each child toward understanding and responding to the gospel. Effective evangelism involves finding out where a child is in their journey in coming to Christ and then building a bridge to bring them to Jesus. As parents, or for those who simply are involved in working with little children, One of the most important responsibilities you have is to pray for your child. You should pray specifically, both that the Holy Spirit would prepare your child, that he would prepare your child by convicting him or her of sin, and then to help you to present the gospel in a way that he can understand the gospel. That brings us to tonight's topic as we consider our responsibility in sharing the gospel highlighted here, of course, with children. We want to share Christ in such a way that it will be clear to the child listening that the Spirit would bring them to faith. You know, the, the amazing thing to me as a pastor sometimes is, you know, parents will come in and there'll be a list of kids on their membership sheet that I'll see, and 
their various ages, and they'll have maybe the active status, but, you know, 14, 12, 10, never been baptized. And I'm thinking, now, are we concerned about this as a parent? Now, you don't obviously want to push someone into that outward symbol if indeed they're not ready. But sometimes parents don't have the concern that they should have. And this is why it's really important to pray. And sometimes, again, I'm not one of these guys, uh, pastors, you come in, I'm just going to make you feel good. I'll deal with you in truth, and I'll encourage you as much as I can. But sometimes when children come in, and I feel like they're woefully behind when they shouldn't be, because there are so many opportunities and avenues for children to grow spiritually that come alongside of the parent and try to help the parent so that what you're doing at home is complemented by what we're doing here. And even to put tools in your hands, and I see that parents aren't even utilizing these things. That's a real concern, especially in this day, when there's so much vying for the hearts and minds of little children. Okay, so let's talk about presenting the plan of salvation to a child. First, be conversational with the child. The starting place is that you have prayed and asked the Spirit to give you both opportunity and clarity in sharing the gospel. Remember what we studied last week from Colossians 4. Paul writes to the church at Colossus and he says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I've been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Here's Paul under house arrest, and he's still praying for opportunity to be able to share the gospel. God gave him a lot of opportunity just with the people who visited and even the guards that he would interact with. As you share Christ, your conversation with the child will be indexed largely on the kind of relationship that you have with that child. If the child you are ministering to is not your own, attempt to get into that child's world to find out their likes and dislikes so that they are more comfortable with you and your transition into the gospel will not be abrupt. So you're working in Awana on Sunday night. You're working in kids' life when we have women's life. You are ministering uh, in children's choirs. You're involved in a vacation Bible school. You are a helper or a teacher in a child's Sunday school class. You're looking, you're praying for opportunities. And remember, there's a certain segment of these children who come to our church on a weekly basis who have parents who just don't care at home, and someone else is bringing them. Sometimes I see people raggled by the behavior of a child, and I think, you don't know what that child's home life is like and for what that child is coming from. He's doing a whole lot better than you might think. If you're related to the child, four there, The best way to get into his world is simply to spend time with him, listening to him, and building into his life. This is like critical, not only critical in winning your children to Christ, but in discipling your children. You're just with them. You're spending time with them. 
you get down on the floor. You know, I told this one dad, I said, why don't you just get rid of your stupid video games? He said, man, you're wasting more time from what you've told me here in my office today. When you could be down on the floor with those kids and reading books to them and getting into their life and finding out what they're thinking. But he was, he was missing it. So one, be conversational with your child. Secondly, in presenting the plan of salvation to a child, use the Bible as the source of your authority. In any presentation of the gospel, you want to use the Bible either from memory or you can open up your Bible and share each verse. But again, using the Bible is critical. Any gospel presentation to either a child or an adult without the use of God's Word will be anemic and will typically bear little fruit. Why can we say that so dogmatically? Because that's really the clear teaching of the New Testament. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard, and how will they hear without a preacher? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Or in 1 Peter 1, we're reminded, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring or abiding word of God. Or James 1.18, by his sovereign plan, he gave us birth through the word of truth, that we would be a kind of first fruits of all created. So just as there are two parents involved in physical birth, the Bible is clear, there are two parents involved in our spiritual birth. On the one hand, we read in Scripture that we're born again <clears throat> of the Spirit. On the other hand, like here in 1 Peter or James, we're born again by the Word, which is it? It's not an either or, it's a both and. But the degree to which we believe that is the degree that we will use Scripture in evangelism or even in helping our children come to know Christ. Um, sometimes someone will come in the office and, and I'll ask the child some verses just to see what they know. I'm kind of feeling them out. But sometimes, you know, they come in, they're 10 and 11, and there's some basic verses especially for these families who've been coming here for five, six, seven years. And I said, I take it your child doesn't go to Awana. No, we're pretty busy on Sunday nights. And okay, I get that. It's only 25 Sundays out of the year. It's not 52, it's 25. But if for some reason the schedule in a family doesn't really allow that, then what they want to do is to create some vehicle by which they could hide those scriptures in the child's heart. Because if faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God, if no one's converted apart from scripture, and you can begin to implant God's word in your child, and that's the great thing about Awana, it's putting in the parent's hand a tool where if they memorize Romans 6.23, they're not just memorizing a verse, they're memorizing the meaning of the verse. And that becomes really, really helpful. Remember, no one has ever had faith that leads to conversion apart from hearing the Word of God. And so using the seed of the Bible is essential. All right, turn the page. You certainly want to avoid any kind of pressure to elicit a decision. Any kind of pressure needs to be avoided like the plague. Make sure that you avoid pressuring the child to make a decision. Because your goal is not to get a decision, 
but to introduce the child into having a personal, living, and life-changing relationship with Jesus. Since Jesus taught, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, it is obvious that conversion takes time. Just like physical birth, it takes time. Seeds planted, gestation, nine months. Even so, spiritual birth takes time. It's important to recognize that while conversion happens in a moment of time, there is a process that takes time leading up to that moment. So one second you're not saved, the next second you are. You can't say, well, I've always been a Christian. No, one second you weren't, and the next second you are, if you're a Christian at all, right? Of course, it worries you when you ask a person how long they've been a Christian. I've always been a Christian. It's kind of a red flag sometimes. Not always, but often. You've got to explore and probe that answer a little bit. But there is a process that leads up to conversion. Okay, ask a lot of questions to see what the child is comprehending. That's one critical role that we can play as we're trying to present the gospel. Ask a lot of questions. Asking many questions will help not just to keep the child's attention, but it will help you to discern if the child is ready to make a decision. The Bible teaches that understanding the critical elements of the gospel precedes genuine conversion, Romans 4, 4, and 5 because we are being asked to believe that which we know, not something we do not know. If you remember in Romans 3, Paul builds the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone, and lets someone think that what Paul is teaching is some new doctrine. He dips back into Old Testament history, and he illustrates that God has always saved people on the same basis by grace through faith. And he illustrates with two of Israel's heroes, namely Abraham and David. What then shall we say, Romans 4.1, that Abraham, our forefather, according to the faith, has found? For if Abraham was justified or saved, you could say about works, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? And then he quotes Genesis 15.6, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned or credited or imputed to him as righteousness. We talk about righteousness being imputed. In Roman Catholicism back here, I'm sure Jeff will cover it in his course, they're talking about righteousness being infused. In biblical theology, in a moment's time, you weren't righteous, then you're declared righteous. And Roman Catholicism, is, I was in the hospital the other day, and I saw this lady carrying her pole, and she had all these bags, you know, hanging on it. And I thought, that's Roman Catholicism. That, that's how my mind was thinking. Why? Because... Grace is infused. It's uh, distributed through Mary, through the saints, through Jesus. That gives you the power to do a good work. If you do enough good works through grace that's infused, then you can get into heaven, but you must first go to purgatory unless you have been declared a saint. We're in the New Testament. So it's kind of a grace plus works. It's a totally distorted, different message preaching another gospel. Where in New Testament theology, it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but what is due. When you work hard at the end of the week, they hand you a paycheck. That's not a favor. They owe it to you. But by contrast, to the one who does not work, 
but believes in him who declares righteous, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted or reckoned as righteousness. Who does God reckon, count, impute righteousness to? One, he sees that he cannot work for it. So does a person have to understand that salvation is not by works in order to be saved? Yes. Do they have to see themselves as ungodly? See, some people, I'm not not that bad. I may have my problems, but I'm not that bad. Well, God says we're ungodly. That's why, again, you can't convict a child of sin, but the Spirit of God can bring it home to that child. They have to see that it's nothing they can do, the one who does not work, but believes in him who saves not the good person, but the ungodly person, So I meet parents sometimes, and they'll say, well, he invited Jesus into his heart, but I don't think he understands the gospel, but he invited Jesus into his heart, so he must be saved. If he doesn't understand the gospel, he's not saved. Understanding precedes genuine conversion. So that's an important truth. Um, So the Bible teaches that understanding the critical elements of the gospel precedes genuine conversion because we are being asked to believe that which we know, not something we do not know. Some questions in presenting the gospel with children might include some of these. Do you know why God made us? Do you realize that someday we will all die? Do you think that everyone who dies goes to heaven? If you were to die today, would you say you're not sure, kind of sure, or real sure you go to heaven? How is Jesus different from you or me? Why cannot the good things that we do get us into heaven? Suppose I wanted to die on a cross for you. Could God accept my death for the punishment that you deserve so that you might be forgiven? What happened to Jesus after he died? Why is the resurrection of Jesus important? Suppose after Jesus died and was buried, just suppose that he stayed in the grave and never came back to life. Do you know that, what that would mean? If Jesus died for everyone who has ever lived in all of time and took all the punishment for every sin, then why doesn't everyone get to go to heaven? How do you get the benefits of Jesus' death and resurrection to count for your life? What does it mean to believe? What's another word for believe? Asking questions will usually elicit more questions that can in turn be used by the Holy Spirit to help your child understand. All right, now we'll pause there for a moment, and I have two children. Gianna, would you come on up here if you don't mind? And Jeremiah, come on up here. You get to sit up here in these comfortable chairs. Didn't you always want to sit up here on a Sunday morning, right, Jana? See Pastor Carlson in this big, fat, luxurious chair? Have a seat. And uh, you can hold that. And when you hold it, just kind of hold it close like that. Come on up, Jeremiah. Nice to see you. Thank you for helping me. Jeremiah, you come and you sit right here, if you will. And uh, I'll turn that on and you can hold that. Jeremiah, how old are you? Nine. Nine years old. All right. Where do you go to school? Ladies Island Elementary. Uh, okay, what grade are you in? Fourth. Fourth. What's, uh, what's your favorite subject in school? P.E. P. 
P.E. <laughs> You're with me, buddy. Good deal. That was my favorite subject, too. All right. Gianna, uh, how old are you? Ten. And where do you go to school? I don't go to school. I'm homeschooled. Okay, so you're home educated. And what grade are you in this year? Fifth. Fifth grade. And what's your favorite subject? Uh, math. Math. Oh, that's a tough one. All right, good. So what I want to do is talk to you guys about a true story. It comes right from God's Word, the Bible. So it's a true story, but I want to use this book. You've probably seen this before. It's just a booklet with colors and no words in it. Have you seen it before? Yes. You have? Yes. All right. How about you? All right. Jeremiah, do you remember what gold stood for? Yes. What does it stand for? Hold your mic just a little closer if you would. It stands for heaven. Very good. Very good. And we're not surprised that gold would stand for heaven, are we? Because there's a lot of gold in heaven. And gold has always been the symbol of great kings, whether it's King Todd or King Henry VIII, they had a lot of gold. Well, God's not just any king, but he's the king above all kings. He's the Lord above all lords, the Bible says. And so we're not surprised there's gold in heaven. But what makes heaven so special is not the gold that's there, but God's there. It's a place that God wants us all to go to. There's no sadness in heaven. There's no goodbyes in heaven. There's no death in heaven. It's where God wants us to go. But, um, Gianna, do you remember what the dark color stood for? Sin. Sin. All right. Do you think you're a sinner? Yes. Do you think you're a sinner, Jeremiah? Yes. If I were to ask you what sin is, what would you say to me? What do you think sin is? Do you have any idea if you had to describe what sin is? Sin is when we disobey God. Yes, very good. Very good. What would you say, Gianna? Anything else? That we say, think, or do that does not please God. Okay, so it's anything that we say, think, or do that does not please God. It might be telling a lie. It might be disobeying your parents. It might be um, taking something that was not yours. Those are all things the Bible calls sin. Now, do you realize someday we're all going to die? Yes. Sooner or later, we're all going to die, right, Jeremiah? Yes. Unless Jesus comes back first. And if he comes back first, he'll take some of us right off the earth and up into the sky. Do you know what that's called? Heaven. Yeah, that's where we're going, to heaven. It's called the rapture when God takes us off the earth. But if we don't meet the Lord in that way, we're going to meet him through death. Now, Gianna, do you think everyone who dies goes to heaven? Do you think everyone who dies gets to go to heaven? Some. Some, not everyone. Okay. Um, let me ask you this, Jeremiah. Suppose you died right now. Would you say to me, Pastor Carl, I'm not sure I would go to heaven? Would you say I'm kind of sure I go to heaven? Or would you say I'm real sure I go to heaven? Not sure, kind of sure, or real sure. What would you say? 100% sure. I'm sorry? 100% sure. 100% sure. What would you say, Gianna? Not sure, pretty sure, or real sure? Pretty sure. Pretty sure. Okay. So let's talk about, too, how we can be real sure, because a lot of us are pretty sure. Uh, when I was your age, I wasn't sure at all. In fact, I didn't really even know how to be sure until I was 18. So I know you guys are probably like miles ahead of where I was when you're 10 or 9. Um, so sin is what separates us from God. Remember Adam and Eve in the Bible? 
Yes. Yeah, God put them in a beautiful garden, and I suppose there were hundreds, maybe even thousands of trees they could eat from, but there was one tree God said, don't eat from it. And he warned, if you eat from that tree, the day you eat from it, you will die. Did they eat the fruit that day? Yes. Yes, they did. Did they die that day? No. Didn't look like it. I mean, God didn't, like, dig a grave and drop them six feet under the ground. But can God lie? No. No, so we know God can only tell the truth. So I got to think, now, wait a minute. God said the day, meaning the very day you eat, you're going to die. Yet they look very much alive. And I know God can't lie, so maybe there's different kinds of death. And there are. There's three kinds of death in the Bible. They did die that day on the inside. Jeremiah, when you do something wrong, do you feel close to God or far away from God? Far away. That's how they felt. They were hiding from God. God comes into the garden. He says, where are you, Adam? Now, does God know everything? Yes. Yes, he does. So God never asks a question to learn. The only time we see God asking questions in the Bible is to reveal, to show us something. And he was showing Adam and Eve there was a problem. They felt guilty. They felt ashamed. So their sin separated them. They did die that day on the inside spiritually. They began to die that day on the outside physically. And so you know what? We're all marching towards the grave. We're getting older and older and older, and we're headed towards the grave. That's called physical death when our body gives out. And then there's a third kind of death. If it's not fixed before we leave this world, there's a forever death in the forever place of punishment. Do you know what the forever place of punishment is? Hell. Hell. And it's not a place God wants us to go. So a lot of people think, Jeremiah, that if they're just really good, they can get to heaven. Do you think that's true? No. Why can't being good get you to heaven? You got to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior to be able to go to heaven. That's true. Now, that's the answer. That's the solution to our problem of sin. But why can't being good get us into heaven? Do you know, Gianna? Because if we do something good, it won't work. If we believe in Jesus Christ, we can go up to heaven if we believe. Okay, okay, good. So th there's two major reasons the Bible teaches why being good can't get you into heaven. Number one, being good can't remove the stain of sin. Suppose, Jana, somehow from this day forward, you lived a perfect life and never did anything wrong again. It wouldn't change the fact that you've done wrong back here. And so good works, Jeremiah, aren't like a big eraser that can somehow remove our sin. So number one, the Bible says our sin stains us. It says your iniquity, your sin, has made a separation between you and God. Suppose, uh, Gianna, your mother has a brand new beautiful carpet in the living room. Just bought it. Is she going to let the dirty, muddy dog in on that carpet? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Don't mess with my illustration. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. She probably would not. But think about God's heaven. It's a perfect place, and we're going to come to it in the, our study of Revelation where God says he can't allow anything to his heaven that will mess it up, and sin would mess up heaven. So number one, being good can't remove the stain of sin, but there's a second reason why being good can't get you into heaven. Jeremiah, do you know this verse? Just fill in the last word. For the wages of sin is? Death. Death. For the wages of sin is death. Gianna, do you know what a wage is? No. Do you know what a wage is, Jeremiah? Kind of. What do you think a wage is? Probably wage means a large amount. 
Uh, a wage is something you earn. You know, when I was nine years old, I had a snow shoveling business. When I was 10, I had a lawn business. But when I was nine, I had a snow shoveling business. And I remember going to Mrs. Cutting's house and knocking on her door. We just had a big snowstorm. And uh, I said, can I shovel your walk? I said, I'll do it very cheaply. And she said, I don't know, that's a lot of snow. You think you can do it? I said, I think I can. Would you let me try? And she said, yes. And she let me try. You know, she gave me, it wasn't worth $2. She handed me $5. That was my wage. A wage is what you earn for what you do. So when the Bible says the wages of sin is death, it's saying what you earn, your paycheck for being a sinner is death. And when God's talking about death, He's not just talking about our bodies giving out physically, but he's talking about a forever death, Jeremiah, and a forever place of punishment. Suppose I were an evil man and I committed murder. And I stood before a judge and I said, um, Judge, I know you're telling me I deserve to die for my crime. But I see prisoners out there on Highway 280 sometimes picking up trash. And uh, how about if I, uh, if you look carefully, sometimes you'll see people in these orange vests on in Beaufort. Sometimes they've adopted a highway, but sometimes it says Beaufort County Jail. And they're out there picking up trash. Judge, how about if I pick up trash for the rest of my life? I'll do it until the day I die. The judge would say, oh, no, 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 no. Those prisoners who've done that, they haven't murdered anyone. Maybe they stole something at Walmart. Maybe they hit somebody, but they haven't committed murder. Your crime deserves to die. Well, God says the wages of sin, what we deserve for our sin is death. And we say, I'll get baptized. God would say being baptized is a good thing. But what's the wages of sin? Death. Someone else will say, I'll keep the golden rule. Do you know what the golden rule is? The golden rule is to keep all his commandments. The golden rule is to do to other people what you'd want them to do to you. Very close, though. It's to treat people the way you'd want them. God, I'll keep the golden rule. And God would say, that's a good rule. My son made it up. But the wages of sin is? Death. Someone else would say, I'll go to church every week. I'll pray. I'll give money to missionaries. And God would say, those are all good things. But the wages of sin is? Death. So only death is going to satisfy God. That brings us to the third color. What does that color stand for? That stands for the blood of Jesus. For the blood of Jesus. Very good, Jeremiah. It stands for the blood of Jesus. So let's talk about Jesus for just a second. How is Jesus different from you or me, Gianna? We are sinners, but he is holy. He is holy. He is the only person who's ever walked on planet Earth who never, ever sinned. Everything he thought, said, and did was absolutely perfect. Now, you're 10 years old. Where were you 15 years ago? Everywhere. Where were you 15 years ago? Nowhere. Nowhere. So, all right. So, actually, 15 years ago, you didn't exist anywhere in the universe except, you're partially right, except in the mind of God. Because God knew he was going to make you. Because God knows the future. And so you were right in that he knew he was going to make you. And you were right, too. You're both right in one sense. But do you know there was never, ever, ever a time when Jesus didn't exist? Now, there was a time when he didn't have a human body. And so what time of year do we celebrate where Jesus leaves heaven and becomes a little baby? Christmas. Christmas, exactly. Sometimes people call it his birthday. I like to call it his Earth Day. 
Because Jeremiah, your life and my life started here on earth, but Jesus left heaven and he came to earth as a little baby. And he's the only one who ever lived who never sinned. Now, here's a direct quote in the Bible. Jeremiah, it says, Christ died for sins. So if Christ died for sins and he had zero sin, whose sin was he dying for? All of ours. Exactly. Now, this is kind of a big word, Gianna, and I don't necessarily expect you to know what it means. I'm going to ask you anyway. Do you know what the word substitute means? Do you know, like, what a substitute teacher is? No. Okay, so a substitute is a thing or a person that takes the place of another. If I were using this pen down here and it ran out of ink, I might say, well, I'll, I'll find another pen, one that will take the place of this one that ran out of ink. Or maybe we could think of it in a different way. Um, you have a sister at home? A brother? No. You have anybody at home? Except for my dad. Okay. I seem to think, if I remember correctly, that, let me pull out your sheet here. No, I don't have it here. Certainly you have a brother or sister at home, right? No, they're all here. Oh, they're all here. my dad. <laughs> that is a great answer. This is one smart girl. All right, so you got Isabella. Isabella is seven years old, right? Yes. Now, for the sake of argument, suppose Isabella did something wrong and she deserved a spanking. And right before your mom gets ready to spank her, you walk up and say, Mom, I know she deserves that spanking. I was wondering if you would spank me instead. Have you ever done that for your sister? No. No. But if you did, you would be her substitute. And Jeremiah, that's the way Jesus was our substitute. He wasn't being punished for his sin because he didn't have any. He was being punished for our sin. He took the punishment for every wrong thought, word, or deed you've ever done. Were you alive when Jesus died? No. No, all of your sin in one sense was the future. Does God know everything, Jeremiah? Yes. Yeah, he saw every bad thing we'd ever do. And the sin of all time was laid on Jesus. He was being punished for our sin. He was our substitute. And that's kind of the way he was our substitute. He was taking our pain and punishment. Now, Jeremiah, did he stay dead? No. What he, happened? He rose again. Yeah, he rose again on the third day. Now, just suppose, Gianna and Jeremiah, suppose after they nailed Jesus to a cross, which they did, and suppose after he died, they buried him in a tomb, which they did, but suppose he didn't come back to life. Suppose he just stayed dead. Do you know what that would have meant? That means he won't. Live again? Yeah, he would never live again. That's true. What else would it mean? Any idea? It means that he's just a man. What he says is wrong about him being God's son. Ah, it would have meant he was not God's son. Think your way through this. Most kids don't get this, so you guys are doing, like, really, really well. Have you ever been to a graveyard? Yes. Yeah, have you ever seen anyone come out of a grave? No. No, me either. Though uh, there are some people in the Bible who died who came back to life. You remember Lazarus, right? Yes. He had two sisters. Do you remember their names? I wish I did, but no. Do you remember? No. Okay, their names were Mary and Martha. So there's Mary, Martha, Lazarus. 
three kids in the family. They were all adults when Jesus walked on the earth, and they were good friends with Jesus. He'd go to their home in Bethany, and they'd cook for him and take good care of him. And Well, one day, Jesus went to their home, and Mary and Martha, the two sisters, they were just crying their eyes out. They said, Jesus, if you had been here four days ago, you could have saved our brother. He was so sick, you could have healed him, but now he's dead. Jesus said, let's go to the graveyard. So they go to the graveyard, and Jesus said, open up the tomb. They said, Lord, he he stinks. You don't want us to open. He stinks. Open up the tomb. You know, not long ago, we had this smell in our backyard. It was underneath the deck. And my wife said, there's something dead under there. You need to go get it. So I went underneath the deck, and we had this crab pot. Jeremiah used to catch crabs in, and this possum had crawled into the pot and got stuck in there. He died in there, and he just stunk. So I kind of dumped out the crab pot, and I took a stick and put him under the possum, and I carried it down to the brush pile and threw him up there to burn him. Well, when people have been dead... They stink. Now, in America, we put all these chemicals in them. But in Israel, to this day, when you die, they bury you usually the same day, if not within 24 hours. They don't put any chemicals in you. They said, Lord, he stinks. Open up the grave. And do you remember what Jesus said? He said, Lazarus, come out. And this man who had been dead for four days came back to life. But eventually, he got old or sick again, and he's buried in some grave over there in Israel. But Jesus wasn't just raised to life. He was resurrected to life. He was the first one ever to come out of the grave in a forever body. And do you know what that is called in the Bible? It's called an announcement. Do you know what an announcement is? Yes. What's an announcement? Um, an announcement's when you're telling everybody about this one thing. You could take Awana as that example. Yeah, very good. Very good, Jeremiah. Maybe at school, the principal comes on the intercom. He says, I have an announcement. Everyone listen up. Well, the Bible calls the resurrection, Jesus coming out of the grave, an announcement or a declaration. What does it announce? What does it say? What does it declare? That Jesus is God, that he was sinless, that death couldn't keep him in that grave because he never, ever, ever sinned. And that's why the resurrection is important, because it proves that Jesus was sinless, and therefore he could be our substitute. Suppose, Gianna, I wanted to die on a cross for your sin. Could I die on a cross for your sin where God would accept my death as a payment for your sin? No. Why couldn't I die for you? Because... We're not holy like Jesus. Exactly. We're sinners. I'm a sinner. Only someone who didn't deserve the wages of sin, death, could die for you, Jeremiah. And there's only one person. Now, I'm almost done. You still with me? Yes. This last color speaks of the purity that God wants to give each one of us. So let's think for a moment. Jeremiah, when Jesus died, did he die for some people, most people, or all people? Obviously, all people. All people. Did he die for some of your sin, most of it, or all of it? All of it. All of it. Every single one. Now, Gianna, if Jesus died for every single person and every single sin, then why doesn't everyone go to heaven? Um, I don't know. What do you think? Why don't they go to heaven? If Jesus took the punishment for every person and every sin, why doesn't everyone get to go to heaven? It's because they didn't accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Okay, 
So you know the word, fill in the blank. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him. Believes in him. So you get credit for what Jesus did on his cross to count for Gianna when you believe in him. Now, there's another word for believe in the Bible. Have you had synonyms in school yet? I'm going to teach you real fast. It's real easy. Have you had synonyms? Yes, synonyms are the same thing. Okay, so there's antonyms. You can hear the word anti in it. There's Christ, and there's a man who's coming who's anti-Christ, and he's the opposite of Jesus. So what's the antonym for cold? The opposite of cold. Hot. So now you know what antonyms are. Synonyms, you said it, it means the same thing. You can almost hear the word same and synonym, right? Two words that mean the same thing. So what's another word in the Bible for belief or believing? Unbelievers. No. Do you know this verse? For by grace you have been saved through Christ. That's true, but that's not what the verse says. Faith. Through what? Faith. 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 Okay. For by grace you've been saved through faith. So sometimes you're going to read in the Bible, you're saved by believing in Jesus, and you're right there. And sometimes you're going to read in the Bible, you're saved by faith in Jesus. The word faith and the word belief are synonyms. So give me a synonym for faith. Uh, hope? No, not quite. Love? No. How about trust? Let me see if I can illustrate it. Um, suppose I invite you to Awana next Sunday night, and I say, Gianna, I'm coming to your Awana class to speak. And you tell your mom, I want to go to Awana tonight. Pastor Carl's going to be in my class, and I want to hear what he has to say. And you come, and I'm there. You come because you believed what I said. Faith is when you believe what someone says. It's when you trust God's word. So there was an old man by the name of Noah one time, Jeremiah, and, and God told him to build an ark. Now remember, before the great flood, it had never rained. God watered the earth with a mist from below. But Noah believed that God was going to flood the world, so he built the ark. See, that's what faith is. You should take God at his word. You believe what he said. So here's the promise, Jeremiah. I'm almost done. He says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, he's talking about Jesus, will be saved. That's what God said. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, I had two children in my office not long ago. The parents brought him in. Let's see, she was nine and he was seven, if I remember. And they said, Pastor Carl, they've prayed the sinner's prayer and they've asked Jesus to be their savior, but we're not really sure they understand. I said, well, we'll talk to them. So I said to the seven-year-old, I said, if you died this second right now, are you not sure, pretty sure, or real sure that you go to heaven? And Jeremiah, he told me he was not sure. Question, had he believed God's promise that whoever will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved if he was not sure? What do you think? I don't know. What do you think? If no. God said, who, you're right, no. He had not yet believed. Now, it's not because he was a God-hater or anything like that. He, he loved the Lord as much as he knew how. and was trying to learn the Bible. He just didn't understand yet. So he had not yet believed God's promise. He had not yet trusted for himself that promise. 
Now remember, God can make that promise because Jesus died. If Jesus hadn't died and taken the punishment for all of our sin, and God said, just call in Jesus' name and I'll save you, then that would be like a judge letting a murderer go free. Yes, because it would be unjust. It would be unfair. Sin has to be paid for. And where was sin paid for? On the cross. On the cross. So, again, he just didn't understand. Now, his sister was a little different. I said to her, if you died right now, are you not sure, pretty sure, or real sure you go to heaven? She said, Pastor Carl, I want to go to heaven. I think I'd go to heaven. I'm pretty sure I'd go to heaven. She went on for about two minutes. And, and uh, had she believed, but she said, I'm not absolutely sure. I'm just kind of sure. Question, had she believed God's promise, whoever will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved, if she was just pretty sure? Maybe. Not yet. Not yet. If I say to you, um, I want to meet you in the Missions Cafe after church tonight because I, uh, I want to give you a Coca-Cola for helping me. And, you, and someone says, uh, well, do you think Pastor Carl's going to be there? And you say, no, he won't be there. Would you have believed me? Not if you said, no, he won't be there. Well, if I said, if someone came up to you, you think Pastor Carl's going to be there to give you the Coke? And you say, well, maybe. I'm kind of, I'm pretty sure. Would you have believed it? Maybe. Not yet. Not yet. So what makes the difference where we cross the line is when we take God at his word and we believe what he said. So if you're just kind of sure or pretty sure, do you want to be real sure? Mm. Yes. So if you ask Jesus to save you, would he lie to you? No. No, the Bible says, Jeremiah, it's impossible for God to lie. God can't do everything. Some people think, well, God can do everything. He can't. He cannot lie, the Bible says. It's impossible for God to lie. So faith is just trusting that God will do what he promised. You call on Jesus and he'll save you right now and forever. It's eternal life. He'll save you right now and forever because of what Jesus did on the cross. But you have to believe that. Does that make sense? Yes. Do you want to be sure? Yes. Can I lead you in prayer for just a second? Yes. All right, you close your eyes and you bow your heads. And Gianna, you pray this after me. Dear Jesus. Dear Jesus. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I don't deserve to go to heaven. I don't deserve to go to heaven. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for dying for me. And for taking my punishment. For taking my punishment. As the risen Lord. As the risen Lord. I trust you now to save me. I trust you now to save me. Thank you for the free gift of eternal life. I thank you for the free gift of eternal life. Amen. Amen. Now, can God lie? No. Whoever, that means anybody, who will call on Jesus' name... God promises he'll save them. Now, Jeremiah, I'm almost done. Do you know why people get baptized? Yes. Why do, have you ever seen someone baptized? Uh, yes. Yeah. They go under the water and then up again. Uh, do you know what the word symbol means? Yes. What is the word? Like if a man on his left hand and this finger has a ring, what does that symbolize? What does it picture? It may symbolize that. He might 
went to a certain store to get it. Okay, yeah. But um, if a man on this finger, we call this the ring finger, we call this the marriage finger. If he has a ring on, that usually means he's married. Okay? Make sense? Suppose, Jana, you went home and your mom had her wedding band up on the bureau. You said, hmm, I've always wanted to try mom's ring on, and you slid it on your finger. Would that make you married? No. No. And if you came to church on with a wedding band, I'd say, Jana, why do you wear a wedding band? You're not married. It would be kind of silly, wouldn't it? Yes. See, the ring doesn't marry two people. God does. What God has married, the Bible says, no one is to divorce. The ring is just a symbol of what God has done. Likewise, baptism is a symbol. You've seen people baptized before, right? They walk up to their waist in the water like this, and the pastor says, Jeremiah, have you trusted Jesus to save you? What would you say, yes or no? Yes. What would you say, Gianna, have you trusted Jesus to save you? Yes. I'd say, because you have, I baptize you. Now, the word baptize is kind of a religious word in our day. But if you live back in the days when Jesus walked on the earth, it wasn't necessarily religious. Like if I had a white shirt like this and I wanted to turn it red, I would take my white shirt and I would baptize it. I would submerge it into red dye. Just meant to submerge. But it becomes a symbol. When someone dies, Gianna, what do you do with a dead person? Buried. Jesus died and he was buried in the tomb. And what did you say, Jeremiah, happened on the third day? He rose again. Here he comes. So you see, baptism is a symbol of Jesus who died, was buried, and was raised. The water is supposed to be the dirt. The person who's getting baptized is Jesus. And the part of the tub that people get baptized in, it would be the tomb. Let me ask you a question. This is an important question. Suppose someone did not ask Jesus to be their Savior, but they got baptized. Would they go to heaven? No. No, they'd just get all wet. They wouldn't go to heaven. Let me ask you this. Suppose someone did ask the Lord Jesus to be their Savior, but they didn't get baptized. Would they go to heaven? No. Why not? Does baptism save you? No. Does it help save you? Maybe. Not a bit. It's just a symbol of the death, burial, and the resurrection. It doesn't wash away sin. In fact, we know for sure, Jan, of one man in the Bible, maybe you know Jeremiah, who went to heaven in the New Testament but didn't get baptized. Do you know who that man was? Do you remember the day Jesus died? How many crosses were there? Three. Yeah, which one was Jesus on? The middle one. Yeah, and these two Jewish men were on either side of him. Now, did these two Jewish men live good lives or bad lives, Jeremiah? I'll tell you the answer, really bad dudes. They live bad lives. In fact, they hung on the cross from nine in the morning till three in the afternoon for six hours. And the Bible tells me in Matthew's account that both these men cursed and blasphemed Jesus to his face. They said mean, ugly things to Jesus. But before the six hours was over, one man, Luke tells us, had a change in his heart. He turned to his friend over here and he said, this one, meaning Jesus, he's never done anything wrong. We're just getting what we deserve. He was saying he was sinless. You and I are sinners worthy of death. How do I know he meant that? Because of what he said next. He turned to Jesus and he said, Jesus, 
Remember me when you come into your kingdom. See, as a Jewish boy, he probably would have went to the temple or the synagogue and heard the Bible read. And he put it together in his mind that the one dying next to him was the Savior of the world who had a kingdom who is not only going to die that day, but who is going to rise from the dead. And so he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in heaven. Now, was he saved by God's grace or by good works? God's grace. Did he get baptized? No, he no. died there that day. So if baptism saves you or help saves you, he would have went to hell. But Jesus said he went to heaven. Now, I'm sure if he could have pulled the nails out of his hands and feet, he would have done anything for Jesus. All right? So um, for helping me, I have something for you. This is a just, I've only given a few of these out. This has just come out in the last few months. This is a children's study Bible in the New American Standard, the one I preach out of on Sunday morning. So you bring that with you. And Jeremiah and Gianna, when you come to church, if you think about it, I want you to do something every Sunday. One, pray for me if you think about it. When we would drive into church in the car, I'd go around the car. When my children were little, I'd say, Jeremy, I want you to pray for the choir director today. And Jordan, I want you to pray for all the nursery workers. And I'd have someone pray for different, and I'd always have someone pray for me. So if you think about it, pray for me every Sunday that God would help me. But I also want you to pray, Jeremiah, for someone else. I want you to pray for you, and I want you to pray for you. Now, here's something about a sermon. If you will say, God, speak to my heart, God loves it when we're teachable. You ever try to help someone, and they already know it, and you know they don't know it, and you can't help them? Well, sometimes God wants to speak to our hearts, but if we know it all, God can't help us. But if our hearts are humble, we say, God, speak to me today. He wants to speak to a 10-year-old girl. He wants to speak to a 9-year-old boy, if our hearts will open. But understand, Jeremiah, you're not going to understand everything Pastor Carl says. It's kind of like math. Uh, you know your numbers? Yes. You know how to add and subtract? Yes. You know how to multiply and divide? Not yet. Not yet. Do you know algebra? No. Geometry? No. Trigonometry? No. Calculus? No, you don't know that stuff. But you see, the way it works is every piece builds on the next. In other words, Jeremiah, you can't add until you know your numbers. And you can't learn the principle of multiplying until you learn the principle of adding. And every piece builds on the next. So when I preach a sermon, I'm teaching some brand new Christians their numbers. They don't know anything about the Bible, just enough to be Christians. And I'm teaching some other people some harder truths and some harder truths. So don't you worry about the things you don't understand. If you will come every Sunday and say, God, speak to my heart, then God will speak to you. Okay? All right, good. I have a question. What's your question? Would the water be hot or cold? <laughs> Well, I was just up there a few minutes ago because I had to retrieve something. It was 91 degrees. So it's usually pretty warm. So that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Yeah. All right, let's give these kids a hand. Thank you. Thank you both so much. All right, you guys go back and you have a seat, and we'll talk some more maybe after the service tonight. Now, let's go back to our handouts here for just a moment. I gotta watch my time because I have less than five minutes left. Um, we are on point E here. If you sense the Holy Spirit's leading, ask the child to receive Christ. 
do not always assume that because a child has prayed the sinner's prayer that conversion has taken place. Remember, while we want to coach a child with the truth of Scripture, you want to discern if the child has embraced Christ for himself. It's possible to coach children with truth so they can give you the right answers without their actually having embraced Christ as Savior. When dealing with a young child, following up with the child some days later will help you to discern if he has understood the gospel by simply asking the same questions but in a different way. So sometimes kids will come in, I'll ask them some questions, and they'll give the wrong answers. And the parents almost fall out of the chair, you know that answer. And all I am doing is I'm asking the same question but a different way. And if they don't really understand it, they will sometimes freeze up or just give the wrong answer. So I will walk them through the plan of salvation, and sometimes they, you know, seemingly are responding, and... uh, They give the right answers, and they pray the prayer with me, and then I'll say to the parents, now, I just coached your children with truth for the last 20 minutes, and maybe they're just responding to my coaching right now. So I want to see your child again in six or eight months. Now, two, when you talk some baptismal questions, you see if they connected baptism to grace, that can be a real telltale thing. But... If they're real young, I usually say, let's, let's meet again in, in six or eight months or a year. And sometimes, to be honest with you, I'll meet with a child three, sometimes over four years before I'll baptize them. Because I, as a pastor, do not want to baptize the child unless the child owns the gospel. They don't have to be a great theologian, but they have to know that they're a sinner bankrupt and that only the death and resurrection can save them. All right, remember, before genuine conversion can take place, a child must be convicted by the spirit of their sin before they can receive Christ. When a child doesn't understand he has sinned or is not willing to admit his sin problem, then step back and pray that God would reveal his need. However, once a child has admitted his sin, continue with more thought-provoking questions about who Jesus is and what he did on the cross. Any clear presentation of the gospel will deal with sin, substitution, and simple faith. Those are the three critical components, sin, substitution, simple faith, as it relates to the death, burial, and the resurrection. Explain the nature of faith or belief as trusting completely God's promise to save us on the basis of the gospel. Now, if the gospel... And I, if I, this was a little, little rushed, if I had a little more time, I would have asked some questions about the gospel. What's the gospel? Well, it's the power of God for salvation, Romans 1.16. You can see it defined here with three underlined words, death, burial, and resurrection. Number 10, help the child from Scripture to see that sin separates us from God, but that faith in Jesus can bring us back into a friendship with God. Never use Christian catchphrases not found in the Bible like accept Christ or commit your life to Christ or invite Jesus into your heart. Those are found nowhere in the Bible. And those are phrases that sometimes don't help at all. The Bible never asks you to invite Jesus into your heart, never once. It says to believe in Jesus, to trust Jesus. So what you're trying to get at is do they understand the nature of faith as it relates to the death, burial, and resurrection? I asked a young man one day, I said, why should God let you into heaven? He said, well, I committed my life to Jesus. So I said to him, Landis, what does it mean to commit your life to Christ? 
He said, well, when I was 16, I turned over a new leaf in life and just started trying to obey the Lord and keep his commandments. That's not salvation. That's salvation by works. The Bible never says accept Jesus, never says commit your life to Jesus. It says, never says invite Jesus into your heart. You can invite Jesus into your heart and be just as lost as can be. Invite, Christ coming into your heart is not the way of salvation. It's a byproduct of salvation. We are indwelt by the Spirit of Christ after we believe in the Lord Jesus, but that's not how we are saved. That is a fruit of conversion. You do not want to give the impression that the child only needs to say a prayer and they will be saved, okay, because it's Jesus alone. 13, depending on your child's age, do not suggest immediate baptism, but rather give the child some time to process their decision. And a lot depends on the age. If a child comes in and they're 13, I mean, developmentally, a child who's 9 and 13 have really moved down the continuum, just like someone who's 18 and someone who's 23. They've matured a lot in that time. So you want to kind of feel, where are they in their maturity level? But you don't want to prematurely invite them to be baptized. Um, I just had a family who joined the church, and, you know, like with any family, uh, we have to meet with them to finish the uh, membership process. And dad and mom said, well, we all became Christians just before we left our last duty station, came here to Buford. And I said, oh, great. Well, let's talk about it. And they couldn't come to meet the pastor, so they came in for an office appointment, and dad and mom had truly received Christ. But their 14-year-old daughter, when I asked a few simple questions, it was obvious. She did not understand salvation by grace alone. But the pastor baptized her. What did he do? He baptized an unbeliever. And that becomes confusing to someone in where they are with the Lord. Find out if the child has a Bible, and if not, provide them with one. You can ask some questions about baptism as another opportunity to see if the child has understood and believed the gospel. Have you ever seen someone baptized? Do you know why people get baptized? Do you know what it symbol means, what it symbolizes? Do you know what baptisms, do you know what a symbol is? Do you know what baptism symbolizes? What if someone did not ask Jesus to be their Savior, but they were baptized, would they go to heaven? You're obviously wanting them to say no. What if someone did not trust Jesus to be their Savior, but they were not baptized? Would they go to heaven? And you would want them to say yes. And then sometimes I'll ask them, why get baptized? If baptism doesn't save you, why do it? Because it's an act of obedience. If God said, Carl, after you become a Christian, I want you to jump up and down your left foot a hundred times, I'd do it. I'd do whatever he wanted me to do out of appreciation, out of gratitude. But he doesn't ask me to do that. He asked me to be baptized. And if you're explaining the meaning of the symbol, what you're explaining to them is you're giving Jesus honor. You're saying to all watching, I'm going into heaven because of nothing I've done, but because Jesus died, was buried, and was raised. You're bragging on Jesus when you get baptized. Do you want to be baptized? And if so, why? All right, our Father, we thank you again for tonight and the opportunity we've had to explore these subjects. Thank you so much for uh, Jeremiah and Gianna and their willingness to come up here in this platform in front of these people and to share their heart. Be with them, guard them, protect them. Use them in a mighty way, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.